Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. Remember to start recording the, recording the, the podcast this morning. I've forgot that a, a couple weeks lately. Uh, so this morning, uh, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Luke. Uh, we are calling this sermon series An Unexpected King. So if you all would go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We spent the last few weeks kind of looking at a, it's, it was almost a, a mini-series, um, about the identity of Jesus and, and what this means that he is the Messiah. Uh, this morning, we're going to shift gears just a little bit, but it's still a, a little bit of an application of that, uh, that little mini-series. But it's the, the focus is a little bit different. This morning, we're going to be in verses uh, 37 through 45. And the title of this sermon is, You Unbelieving and Perverse Generation. Ooh, that sounds a little scary. But the title of this sermon is, You Unbelieving and Perverse Generation. And the main idea is that faithlessness, if I can say it right, faithlessness leads to failure. I'm going to say that again. The main idea is that faithlessness leads to failure. So I've got this text broken down into three divisions. Uh, Verses 37 to 40 is down the mountain. Uh, 41 to 43 is casting out a demon. And then the rest of 43 through 45 is not understanding. So I'll pray and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, God, I ask that you will help us to understand the message that you have for us. God, help me to give the message that you want me to give this morning and help us to hear the words that you have for us. Transform us to be more like you. Impact our hearts, change our hearts so that we can glorify you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so I'll go ahead and start reading here in verse uh, 37. It says, The next day, when they came down the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. All right, so... Coming back here to just verse 37, it says, Luke says, the next day when they came down from the mountain. Well, who was up on the mountain? What were they doing up the mountain? Yes, that was the transfiguration. All right, we talked about that last week. Who was up there? Yeah, Peter, James, and John. Three others. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Yes, so they were up on the mountain. Um, Jesus was transformed into his heavenly glory and shined brightly. Moses and Elijah came and were talking with Jesus about his upcoming departure. When the three disciples woke up, because they had fallen asleep, when the three disciples woke up, Peter offered to make some tents so that they could stay there longer. But God's presence descended like a cloud and enveloped them. And God said, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Now, this was a a literal and figurative mountaintop experiment or experience, right? Yes, they were literally up on top of the mountain, but more importantly, this experience would undoubtedly be one of the most spiritually fantastic moments that, the, that these three disciples would get to witness. The disciples knew that it was important, even if they didn't understand completely exactly what was going on, even if they didn't understand it completely how they were supposed to react, they knew this was an important moment. This was a, a spiritual, a, a figurative mountaintop experiment, experience. Then immediately following that experience, they come down the mountain, again, literally and figuratively, because they come down the mountain to this, uh, this scene. 
this dad brings his son up to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, heal my son, please. I'm begging you, heal my son. He has a demon, and this demon attacks him. This demon throws him into convulsions, and he's, he has these bruises, and he seizes, and he screams. He's being tortured by this demon. Please heal my son. I asked your disciples to do it, and they couldn't do it. From the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. They were up there. They witnessed Jesus' glory. They saw him with Moses and Elijah. They got a peek into heaven and down the mountain. They're here in the, the, the throes of sin, getting to see this spiritual battle that's happening in this child's life. And we know that Jesus has already given the disciples power and authority to cast out demons. We know that the disciples have already experienced casting out demons. And yet here they are, and they can't do it this time. From the mountaintop to the bottom of the mountain. They have this wonderful experience, and then they come up to this severe struggle. If we look how Matthew describes this demon possession, we can see the danger that this child is really in. Matthew tells us, uh, well, the, the father says, Lord, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. So when we put these two witness statements together, uh, Matthew and Luke, when we put these two statements together, this demon possession take, uh, presents with these symptoms. There are seizures or convulsions. There's screaming, foaming at the mouth, falling into fire and falling into water. And Mark also adds a detail that the demon makes the boy mute. So the kid's father brings this child to Jesus with the hope that Jesus can heal him. He is desperate. He is begging for the healing of his only son. The dad says, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Like I said, this is what I was talking about with this uh, figuratively coming down the mountain. They just witnessed Jesus' glory one of the greatest moments of their lives. And now they can't cast a demon out of the boy. This is the first of several failures that we will get to see from the disciples at the end of chapter 9. Over the next three weeks, we're going to look at these failures. But right now, we're focusing on just this first failure. Like I said, we, knew, we know Jesus has already given them authority and power to drive out demons. We know that the disciples had been previously successful in casting out demons. But for some reason, now they are failing They can't do it. They've done it before. Jesus has given them the power and the authority, but they're failing now. Talk about coming down the mountain, seeing Jesus' heavenly glory here on earth, and then losing your former abilities. Well, how does Jesus respond to all of this? Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be here, or how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Jesus' response. You unbelieving and perverse generation. Ooh, it's quite the striking rebuke. But who is the recipient of this rebuke? Who is this rebuke directed towards? Is it the crowd? Is Jesus calling the crowd the unbelieving and perverse generation? Is he calling the dad the unbelieving and perverse generation? I don't think so. I think Jesus is talking to the 12 disciples. It's not exactly clear from this text, 
But even if you read also Matthew and Mark's versions of the story, it's not exactly clear who the, the rebuke is directed towards. But there's a detail in Matthew's account that makes me think that this is directed at the disciples. In Matthew 17, 19, when the disciples ask why they couldn't cast out the demon, Jesus says that their failure is because of their lack of faith. The disciples' lack of faith is why they couldn't cast out the demon. And so that lack of faith ties with this unbelieving, you unbelieving and perverse generation. I think that Jesus is directing this towards his disciples. Jesus said their failure is because of their lack of faith. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that this rebuke is directed at those disciples. But I don't want to just look at the recipients of the rebuke. This phrase, unbelieving and perverse generation, deserves some close attention. All right, so we'll break it down. Unbelieving. All right, this is where that, that lack of faith statement from Matthew ties in. But it still seems rather harsh. Right? Earlier in the chapter, Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. All 12 disciples have left their livelihoods, they've left their families to follow Jesus because they believed that he is the Messiah. That sounds like a pretty bold faith to me. They went out to the the surrounding villages. They, They went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God. They went out casting out demons and healing sicknesses. That sounds like pretty good faith to me. So how can Jesus call them unbelieving? Well, we know that our faith in Jesus should be like a light switch that's stuck in the on position, right? It's always on. It's always 100%. Unfortunately, in our sinful human condition, belief is um, it's, it's a bit imperfect. It's more like a sliding scale. And, and sometimes it feels like that sliding scale has a weight tied to the bottom of it, dragging it down, and we're struggling to hold it up. Sometimes it's hard to maintain our faith. The disciples seem to be in one of those moments where their faith is being dragged down on that scale. Then secondly, perverse, unbelieving and perverse generation. So perverse. Well, what were they doing that was so perverse? Well, first, I think it's a good time to bring up a discussion that we had last week in Sunday school. We were looking at Galatians 5. Peter lists behaviors that would qualify as perverse. Galatians 5, 19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions and factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. But if we look through that list that Paul just gave us, what are the disciples guilty of? It doesn't seem like they're doing any of this. But if they are trying to cast out demons or, or anything else that might be glorifying to God without faith, if they're trying to cast out demons or anything that might be glorifying to God without first surrendering to God, then I would say they're guilty of idolatry. Somehow, the disciples think they are good enough or powerful enough or righteous enough or some other enough that they can cast out these demons without Jesus' power. It's that idol that I've said so many times that that I struggle with. It's the idol of me. I think that's what's happening with these disciples now. They're faithless. And since they're faithless and trying to do the works of God, they're being idolatrous. 
That's the perversion. Idolatry is the greatest perversion of all because it takes the, the, the one true, holy, mighty God and replaces him with something less. It takes the one almighty and powerful God and replaces him with something perverse, something less than. Replaces the creator with the created. But even if this rebuke is not directed solely at the disciples, it's an appropriate description of the condition of our world after sin entered. Turning back to Paul's wisdom, but in another place, this time in Romans 1, Paul says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust to one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own persons an appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Even if Jesus' rebuke is not directed at the entire crowd there that day, this description applies just as strongly today as it did back then. Jesus' rebuke could be applied just as strongly today as it was then. Jesus' rebuke could be applied just as strongly to us, often, unfortunately, could be applied just as strongly to us as it was to the disciples. Thankfully, it was this unbelieving and perverse generation that Jesus came to save. Because of our sin, we deserve death. We perverted God's will for our lives and rejected him. The punishment... For that is eternal separation from him in hell. But Jesus came, God in human flesh, and lived a perfect life. He sacrificed himself in our place. He took our punishment on the cross. He took all those perversions to the cross for us. Jesus defeated sin and death for us. He was buried in the grave, and three days later, he was resurrected in victory over death. When we place our faith in him, he takes our guilt and gives us his righteousness. Through faith in him, our relationship with God is restored and we can have eternal life with him. This unbelieving and perverse generation needs Jesus. You and I need Jesus. All of us do. Without faith, we are incapable of pleasing God. Without faith, we are that unbelieving and perverse generation. And speaking of lacking faith, obviously the disciples failed. So Jesus calls for the boy to be brought to him. It says, as the boy was still approaching, approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Mark tells us that it was the sight of Jesus that caused the demon to attack the boy here. When the demon saw Jesus, it threw the boy into convulsions. Jesus rebuked the demon. I suppose the disciples had to be glad that the, the recipient of Jesus' rebuke has now been shifted from them onto the demon. But I do find it interesting that Luke, that Luke quotes Jesus' rebuke towards the disciples. 
but merely mentions the rebuke towards the demon. But it was the words of Jesus that brought healing to the boy. By merely speaking, the demon is cast out from the boy. Jesus' power over demons, Jesus' power in the spiritual realm, is so complete that just his words alone are enough to defeat this demon. With a quick rebuke, the boy is healed and given back to his father. Then it says, And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Jesus' power over the demon shocks the crowd. They are amazed by him and his healing. They are amazed at Jesus' power, and God is glorified in this act. God is is gloriously present in all of Jesus' acts. Remember back again to last week's Sunday school lesson. We talked a lot about surrender. As we surrender more to him, Jesus works more in our lives. As we surrender more of our lives to him, he works more in our lives. As we surrender more to him, he is glorified more in our lives. If God is gloriously present in all of Jesus' acts, then our lives glorify God the more that we surrender to him. This act here and the astonishment of the crowd should demand greater faith in Jesus. They see his power over the demon and they hopefully place their trust in them. They hopefully increase their faith in him. But that's not quite the end of the story because Luke continues, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. Jesus says, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, this is Jesus' second prediction of his death. The second time he's telling his disciples what's in store. There's an interesting difference here, though. There's a new detail that we're given the second time that wasn't in the first. Jesus says that he will be betrayed. It's not just that the religious elites are going to torture and kill him. We learned that last time. We learned that last time. But this time we learned that he's going to be betrayed. That torture and that murder is going to come as a result of betrayal. Someone close to Jesus is going to turn his back on Jesus and hand him over to the Pharisees and Sadducees. We know now that that traitor was Judas Iscariot. But the disciples didn't know that at the time. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us they didn't understand any of it. He says they didn't understand this statement. It was concealed from them, so they could not grasp it. Now, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that tells us that the meaning was concealed from the disciples. Now, this is the second failure of the disciples in this text. First, they failed to cast out the demon, and second, now they're failing to understand Jesus' words. Remember, at the transfiguration, God told Peter, James, and John, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Well, here, they're not listening. They're failing to understand because they're failing to listen. For some reason, it seems that even though Jesus is telling the disciples plainly what's going to happen, something or someone is preventing them from understanding what he is saying. What is it? Who is it? What's preventing them from understanding? Well, we don't know. To be honest, though, even though we want to blame Satan, 
a lot of times when we don't understand what God's telling us. Or we want to blame somebody else when we don't understand God's will for our lives. I think a lot of times the person who's guilty for not understanding, we can find that person in the mirror. I think we are guilty a lot of times of purposely misunderstanding God or not allowing ourselves the time to dwell on God's word so that we can understand it. It's not that Satan is blocking our mind to understand. It's not that somebody else is telling us the wrong thing. That might happen sometimes, but I think most of the time we have a failure to understand because we're not putting the work in so that we can understand or we're not listening close enough to God so that we can understand. He's telling us, but are we listening? He's telling us, but are we pondering on his words? Are we praying about it? Are we studying his word to really understand what he's telling us? I think here the meaning of Jesus' words are concealed either by the disciples' own preconceived expectations of the Messiah or by the fallen condition of how our brain is affected by sin. However, it is this failure to understand that makes the point of last week's lesson and last week's sermon so important. The main point was listen to Jesus. Our mind is cloudy as a result of sin. We can't think clearly. We can't think righteously. Therefore, we must listen to Jesus. Both of these failures point to a lack of faith. The disciples didn't have enough faith to cast out the demon, and the disciples didn't have enough faith to understand what Jesus was saying. So what application do we get from this? How do we take this text and apply it to our lives today? Well, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And in that we have our three indicators of a disciple, the knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that faithlessness leads to failure. In today's text, the disciples' faithlessness led to two failures, a failure to cast out a demon, and a failure to understand Jesus' words. In our own lives, when we lack faith, we will fail. We may not fail at every single thing we do, but we will fail at the most important thing. That's glorifying God. And it is only through faith that we can glorify God. Without faith, we will fail to enter heaven. Without faith, our sin still requires punishment, and we will pay the penalty for it if we don't let Jesus do it. I wish that I could tell you that faith is like a light switch that gets stuck in the on position. Unfortunately, it's not always that easy. Life is not always easy. Mark's version of the story adds this detail that I didn't discuss earlier, but it sums up this point nicely. In Mark 9, 23, it says, uh, Jesus said to him, Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. The father has faith, but he recognizes that his faith is imperfect. The father has faith, but he recognizes he can still grow in his faith. With us, we recognize that our faith is imperfect. The one we have faith in is perfect, but our faith, because of our sinful condition, is imperfect. We've placed our faith in Jesus. We do believe. And we must pray that God helps us in our areas of unbelief. Our B application is to be a reflection of God's character. Jesus' rebuke was twofold towards the disciples. Unbelieving and perverse. The first one was addressed in that first application point. Unbelieving and faithlessness. 
We want to be believing. We want to be known for our faith. As for the second one, God's righteousness is the opposite of perversion. Or more accurately stated, anything that is outside of God's, God's character is a perversion of perfection. Anything outside of God's character is a perversion of perfection. Anything outside of God's will for our lives is a perversion of his will. Earlier, I had us look at Paul's list of perverse behaviors in Galatians. He called them the works of the flesh. Does anybody remember what came immediately after that? Hmm. Immediately after the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, picking up in verses 22 to 23, Paul says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But how? How do we have the fruit of the, fle- the, the fruit of the Spirit? Our fleshly desire is to sin. How do we overcome that sin? We can't. At least not on our own, not on our own. We must surrender to Jesus in faith. Through surrendering to him in faith, then and only then can we be a reflection of God's character. Through surrender to him, then and only then can he create in us a non-perverse version of ourselves. Only through surrender to him can we glorify God. Our due application Well, I just kind of said it, surrender to Jesus, right? Last week, this surrender took the form of listening to Jesus. His words give us strength, wisdom, guidance, and life. And this week, this surrender to Jesus is in the form of placing our faith in him. He has the power over our sins and our struggles. Just as he has the power over the demon in this story, Jesus has the power over the battles in your life. The father surrendered the boy over to Jesus to be healed, and the father surrendered his hope to Jesus. And in that surrender, Jesus gave him his son back. When we read through Mark's version of the story, there's a moment where it seems like the boy dies. When they bring the boy to Jesus and the demon attacks him, it seems like, even for a moment, that the boy dies. It says that these severe convulsions and the shrieking happens. Jesus rebukes the demon and the boy stops. And it looks like he's dead. And Jesus walks over grabs him by the hand, and stands him up and gives him back to his father. We surrender our problems to Jesus. We surrender our struggles to Jesus. And in so doing, he gives us back healing. He gives us back uh, righteousness. He gives us back the will, or his will for our lives. We surrender our battles to him, and he gives us back the ability to glorify him through faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you will help us to see our areas of weakness. Help us to be like the Father in this story. I believe, but help my unbelief. God, help us to surrender all that we are to you, every aspect of our life. God, I pray that you will help us to to give it to you so that you can take our surrender, work in our hearts, We can grow in our faith and glorify you in all that we do because it is only you that deserves that glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. 
If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.